And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. Good morning. Welcome to Sandy Creek Stirrings. My name is Joshua Jimenez, and I am glad to be with you for another episode on the podcast. And so I hope the podcast has truly been a blessing to your heart. And I hope our our series on Baptist history, of course, on Thursday mornings, has been something that you have enjoyed, something that has spoken to your heart, something that has maybe educated a little bit. And hey, we need some more education, don't we? And we need to be taught some things. And so Baptist history has truly changed my life and the way I look at history and the way I look at different things that happen in the world. And so I'm so thankful that I spent the time at one point in my life to sit down and learn Baptist history. And I think you will feel and believe the same when we complete this series. And we've still got a while yet before we get through it. So to kind of cover where we're at in Baptist history up to this point, let me give you just a brief breakdown, a brief overview, a brief review of what we have covered up to this point. In the past couple weeks, we have talked about the preparation for the Reformation, the preparation for the Reformation. And we talked about an important time period that would take place, and we talked about what prepared the way for that. We talked about the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. We talked about, oh, what else did we talk about? Think about it. What did we talk about? We talked about the Renaissance. We talked about the printing press. We talked about the rise of the vernacular Bible. And all those things would contribute to the Protestant Reformation that was about to explode onto the scene. And then we spent some time talking last week about John Wycliffe and his English translation of Scripture. And so we talked about him and his Baptist lollards that followed him, laugh out louders. And if you missed that, you can go back and listen to that wonderful joke I told in last week's episode. And so now that we've covered the preparation, the foundation for the Reformation, let's talk about the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. It truly started on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittburg, Germany. And so they were what he felt to be biblical reasons for why he disagreed from the, with the Roman Catholic Church and was breaking off from the Roman Catholic Church. And so he began to preach and teach against them and truly nailed that 95 Theses to the, um, to the Castle Church of Wittenberg. And that's really when the Protestant Reformation broke out. And so the idea that a religious movement could stand up to the Roman Catholic Church and have a biblical basis, sort of, kind of, was an explosive thought. And many people, many people began standing against the Roman Catholic Church after finding out and beginning to read and being encouraged to read the Bible for themselves. And so they were reformers. They were trying, by the way, to reform a good movement. What they felt was a good movement gone bad. Let me ask you a question. From what we've learned so far, was the Roman Catholic Church ever a good movement? 
Now, for all my Catholic friends listening, <laughs> for all my Catholics listening, they're going to say, absolutely, but scripturally, was it? No, it was not. The Catholic Church was never a good movement. It was always bad. So they were trying to make a bad movement good. And um, that's not going to work. But as they began to break off from the Roman Catholic Church, they began to try and reform this good movement gone bad, and they were trying to do what they felt to be a biblical answer to the Roman Catholic Church. And so this time period, starting really October 31st, Halloween, interesting enough, October 31st, 1517, started the Protestant Reformation. Now, of course, these people that would come out were called Protestants. Really, you look at the word, I do not understand why we pronounce it that way. And yes, this is just a sidebar, but it looks to me like it should be pronounced protestant. And to me, it almost makes more sense. You know, they're protesting. We don't say, oh, they're out in the streets protesting. We say protesting, and so I don't know why we pronounce it Protestant, and so surely some English grammar teacher will reach out to me and tell me why we pronounce it Protestant instead of Protestant. But anyway, they began to cry. The cry of the Reformers, by the way, was sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, which means, it's Latin for by scripture, alone. Scripture alone. And this is what they wanted. They said that they wanted to determine their beliefs by the Scripture alone, not by tradition of the Catholic Church, not by priests, not by any of that. They wanted to determine their faith and their belief and their doctrines by Scripture alone. That sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds great. I'm excited for that. Hopefully they do it, but what you'll find is it's not completely true. And I say it's not completely true because they didn't actually apply that statement to their religions, their, can I use the term, denominations that would come out of the Roman Catholic Church during the Protestant Reformation. They didn't use the entire Word of God. In fact, they kept many false Roman Catholic doctrines, such as infant baptism such as transubstantiation, such as the state church. They continued persecution of those who disagreed with him. And so while sola scriptura was their motto, it really was not. And what we'll find in history was that it had been a Baptist distinctive all along. And so, as men began to break off from the Roman Catholic Church, I normally, when I teach this in a church setting, I pull out my right and white board, and I will draw a diagram and show exactly what denominations came out of the Roman Catholic Church, and we discuss each one just kind of briefly, and we discuss each one, where they came from, what their history was, so you can get a little bit of an understanding of them. And so, Let's go ahead and kind of do that. Now imagine in your head you have the Roman Catholic Church at the top of your diagram, and you're kind of, kind of, kind of going to do a fountain coming down out of that. So let's do the Roman Catholic Church in a line straight down, and then we're going to break that off into three parts, kind of a three-prong line, all right? So let, the first one we're going to talk about is let's talk about Martin Luther. What happened with Martin Luther? What would he do as a reformer? And so let's talk about him just a little bit. Martin Luther, he was in Germany, and his followers would end up becoming known as the Lutherans, the Lutherans. Now let me take a step back for just a second. Was this time period really the greatest thing that would happen? In the Baptist eye, no, it's not. 
Absolutely not. The reason why is now, instead of just the Roman Catholic Church persecuting the Baptists, now you've got the Roman Catholic Church and, and this denomination and this denomination and this denomination and this denomination, and they're all persecuting the Baptist. But God would use this time period to break the power of the Roman Catholic Church. Their power climaxed October 31st, 1517, and it went down from there. They wouldn't have a stranglehold on the known world like they had for many years. Many years. They wouldn't have a stranglehold like that anymore. Their power was never the same. And so God would use it to break that stranglehold, to allow the Baptists to, yes, even be persecuted, and to continue that spread. So God would use this for his good and for his glory, but I don't think it's exactly how he wanted to work in history. I think he had his own plan that if people would have just followed, we would have never faced the persecution anyway. But it was in God's plan within his will, and so the Protestant Reformation happened, and God would use it for his glory. But Martin Luther was in Germany, and so his followers became known as the Lutherans. And so Martin Luther, by the way, readily admitted that he had no intention of starting a new church. He simply wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church. He believed they didn't use the Bible enough, and so an example of that would be that he was given a doctorate of divinity, and he had never seen a complete copy of the Bible. How is that even possible? I don't really know, but it had happened. The Augsburg Confession was a doctrinal statement put out by German Lutherans in 1530, and it really summarized much of Luther's beliefs. And remember, I want you to keep in the back of your head, they cried sola scriptura, but was that actually what they believed? Well, here's a Augsburg Confession. Here's a quote from it. You tell me. Here's a quote. Baptism is necessary for salvation, therefore children should be baptized. Will you find anywhere in Scripture that baptism is necessary for salvation? No, you won't. It's not in there. It's not necessary. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 21 makes statements on that. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. And secondly, you won't find children or infants, rather, being baptized at eight days old. You will not find it. In fact, Luther held to infant baptism. Martin Luther held to that. He believed baptism is necessary for salvation. Does that, does that mean sola scriptura was an accurate term for, him, term for him? No, it's not. It's not. Now, since then, the Lutherans have put out on their website that baptism is not, quote, absolutely, end quote, necessary for salvation. But they do say this on their website. I quote from the Lutherans' website, quote, baptism is a powerful means of grace by which God grants faith and forgiveness of sins. Is that true? No, that is not true. It is simply an outward expression of our faith. Here's a quote from Luther in discussion with others. He said, quote, It gives, speaking of baptism, it gives the forgiveness of sins, redeems from death, and the devil gives eternal salvation to all who believe this just as God's word, words promises and declare. Well, He's not believing the Bible. I don't know what he's believing, but it sounds like he's still holding to some of the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. He was simply reforming the Roman Catholic Church. Now, here's a curious belief Martin Luther held to. He believed that if the Bible wasn't specifically against something, then it was for it. He said this, 
What is not against the Scripture is for the Scriptures, and the Scriptures for it, end quote. He applied this line of thinking to several of his beliefs, such as purgatory, such as honoring and reverencing Mary, such as offerings for the dead, and here's one that's even more interesting. One man took this belief that if Scripture doesn't say explicitly against it, then Scripture is for it. Here's a man that took it to heart, Philip of Hess. Philip of Hess. And I quote from a historian, Quote, Christina, the daughter of George Saxony, had been Philip's lawful wife for 16 years and was the mother of eight children. But her husband wished to add Margaret, I guess that's how you pronounce it, von der Sey, as a second wife. And as if he desired to act on Luther's principle of interpreting the Bible, he wrote to Wittenberg theologians, reminding them that the scriptures did not forbid him to have two wives. And let me pull out of the quote for a second. I don't know where he got that from. Scripture is very clear. It's one man, one woman. One man, one woman. All right? Side note. There we go, our commercial. Back to the quote. This practical test of Luther's rule greatly troubled its author, yet nothing daunted. On December 10th, 1539, he and Melathon, another theologian, united in an answer in which they boldly took the ground that what Moses had allowed in regard to marriage, the gospel did not forbid. And they said, therefore they say, your highness has not only our approval in this case of necessity, but also our reflections upon it. This bigamous marriage took place at Rothenburg, March 4th, 1540, without divorcing his first wife, and on the next day Philip wrote Luther with a cheerful conscience thanking him for his counsel in the case. Does that sound like sola scriptura to you? Doesn't sound like it to me. Martin Luther believed, by the way, in persecution of the Baptists. He said this concerning them. He said, quote, The peasants would not listen. They would not let anyone tell them anything. Their ears must be unbuttoned with bullets till their heads jump off their shoulders. On the obstinate, hardened, blinded peasants, let no one have mercy, but let everyone as he is able to hew, stab, slay, lay about him as though among mad dogs, so that peace and safety may be maintained. And by that way, you can find that in Martin Luther's own work. Luther's writing on the peasant wars are full of such expressions as above, and really, these statements were also applied to the Baptists, which were considered and lumped in with the peasants of the time, heretics of their day. In fact, years later, Martin Luther records that he, by his own answer, by his own hands, killed over 100,000 peasants. In fact, he recorded this, quote, It was I, Martin Luther, who slew all the peasants in the insurrection, for I commanded them to be slaughtered. All their blood is upon my shoulders, but I cast it on our Lord God, who commanded me to speak in this way. Yeah, he believed in the persecution of Baptists. Now, some may ask, why are we talking about the Protestant Reformation? We're not Protestant. This is a Baptist here um, history study. Why are we talking about the Protestants? And the reason why is because it's important that you understand that now it's not the Roman Catholic Church going after the Baptists anymore. Now it's the Roman Catholic Church and add in the Lutherans and add in some others we're going to talk about. So it's important we understand what were the Baptists facing during these days. Well, they faced men who said, that their ears must be unbuttoned with bullets till their heads jump off their shoulders. Yeah, 
That's what they faced. In 1529, the imposing Diet of Spears pronounced the death sentence upon all Anabaptists. The council was composed not only of Roman Catholics, but of Protestant princes and heads of states and Lutherans. They hated each other, and they did not get along even in this diet, this council, but they hated the Anabaptists, the Baptists, even more. And so the proclamation of the Diet greatly accelerated the program of extermination that was already in progress. I quote, 400 special force police were hired to hunt down Anabaptists and execute them on the spot. The group proved too small and was increased to 1,000. Thousands of Anabaptists fell victim to one of the most widely spread persecutions in Christian history. Burning faggots and smoldering stakes mark their trek across Europe. In 1538, not having gotten rid of all of the hated Anabaptists, the Council of Protestant Augsburg complained, or complained, proclaimed that those who returned to the city the first time would lose a finger, be branded in the cheek, or put in the neck iron. If they returned again, they would be drowned. With a straight face, the proclamation added, and I quote from them, We do this not to make men believe as we do. It's not a matter of faith but to prevent division in the church, end quote. Folks, for me, baptism is a matter of faith. Folks, for the Bible, baptism is a matter of faith. I don't know where they got it from. In fact, there's an old-timey preacher. I'm considered by many to be a great man of God, and I was reading his book, and he said this. He said, baptism isn't an area that we should um, that we should quibble over. It's not an area that we should not, you know, fellowship with somebody over. Let me tell you something. If I've got a guy who believes in infant baptism, the Bible says it's a false doctrine, and the Bible says, by the way, it's an unfruitful work of darkness. I should have no fellowship with it. It is a matter of faith. And so Luther would go on to hold many of the beliefs of the Catholics and by the way, persecuted and killed many Baptists. And so looking back at our diagram in your head, you got the Roman Catholic Church, go down, you split it into three lines, and you have the Lutherans. The second ones I want to talk about is the Reformed churches or the Calvinist churches. And here's the deal. I'm not going to go back and review all that we talked about John Calvin and Calvinist. And we talked about that in our two-part Calvinism series. If you missed that, go back and listen to it. But let me give you just the five tenets of what he believes. John Calvin, of course, held to total depravity. Total depravity. He held to unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And so if we, if you remember what we talked about in our Calvinism series, he was a very—I have no problem saying this—he was a very wicked man. A very wicked man. He believed in a state-run church. He punished those who did not attend services. He believed in a—he um, he just believed a whole bunch of things that is wrong, and he believed in persecuting those who disagreed with him, and he believed in the persecution of the Baptist. And so John Calvin killed many and encouraged the killings of many Baptists. In the letter to Lord Protector Somerset, he said this and urged him to put Anabaptist to death when he said, quote, "...these altogether deserve to be well punished by the sword, seeing that they do conspire against God who had set him on his royal seat." One historian said Calvin, quote, was responsible in a large measure for the demon of hate and fierce hostility which the Baptists of England had to cower had to encounter, end quote. 
And so he would start the Calvinist or the Reformed churches, and so you can put in there their name in that third or that second slot in your diagram in your head. And then the third slot belongs to John Knox. Now, John Knox was in the British Isles. He was in Scotland, and uh, he ended up starting the Presbyterians, the Presbyterians. And so he combined some Calvinism doctrines with some New Testament doctrines and with some Catholic doctrines, and it was kind of just this mixed soup of doctrine. And so he believed in a lot of weird things, but he, uh, he helped to author the Scots Confession of 1560. I'm going to point out one point, because we don't have a whole lot of time. I'm going to point out one point on him. Here's what he said on infant baptism in the Scots Confession, quote, And thus we utterly damn the vanity of those that affirm sacraments to be nothing else but naked and bare signs. No, we assuredly believe that by baptism we are engrafted in Christ Jesus to be made partakers of his justice, by the which our sins are covered and remitted. End quote from the Scots Confession, 1560, chapter 21. And so, is that true? No, it's not. It's not how we become part of Christ. It's not. And so, just one point alone, infant baptism, not right. And um, he was relatively quiet in the realms of persecution, though, but John Knox of the Presbyterians. And so, fill out those slots. I want to talk to you about, though, real quick with the last of our time, another reformer who he didn't necessarily have a church named after him, a denomination, you know, that we necessarily have today, but he is commonly associated with the Lutherans, had some Calvinistic views, but he was an important Protestant reformer during this time period. His name was Huldrych Zwingli. Huldrych Zwingli. And I guess that's how you pronounce it. It feels cool to pronounce it like that. And so... Let's talk about him. He held to infant baptism, held to a state-run church, and denied the doctrine of transubstantiation, which was a good thing. And so he was a leader in Zurich, Switzerland, and eventually came to a head in a heated debate between Zwingli and the Swiss Baptist concerning infant baptism. And so on January 17, 1525, a disputation between Zwingli and those opposed to infant baptism was conducted in Zurich before the city council. So the decision was not long in coming, by the way. The next day, January 18th, the council decreed that all infants must be baptized within eight days of birth, and those who did not baptize their infants would be banished from the city. In fact, on January 21st, same council forbade all opponents of infant baptism to meet together or to speak in public. So that means if you're a Baptist, you are not allowed to meet together. You are not allowed to speak in public. You are being persecuted. In March of that year, the Zwingli-influenced city council issued a strong edict against the Anabaptists, which was ratified in November, and I quote from them, You know without doubt and have heard from many that for a long time some peculiar men who imagine that they are learned— have come forward astonishingly, however you say that, and without any evidence of the Holy Scriptures, given as a pretext by simple and pious men, have preached and without the permission and consent of the church, and have proclaimed that infant baptism did not proceed from God, but from the devil, and therefore ought not to be practiced. We therefore ordain hereafter all men, women, boys, and girls forsake rebaptism, and shall not make use of it hereafter, and shall let infants be baptized. Whosoever shall act contrary to this public edict shall be fined for every offense one mark. And if any be disobedient and stubborn, they shall be treated with severity 
For the obedient we will protect, the disobedient we will punish according to his deserts without fail. By this, all are to conduct themselves. All this we confirm, this public document stamped with the seal of our city and given on St. Andrew's Day, A.D. 1525. Persecution. We will deal with you severely, is what they said. You'll find the Anabaptists in that area, including their leaders Grebel and Mons, were thrown into prison on December 1527. Felix Mongs, Jacob Falk, and Henry Ryman were put to death by drowning. The council had decreed, quote, He who immerses shall be immersed. If you want to baptize people by immersion, then, hey, we'll immerse you. We'll just hold you under a little bit longer. The Protestant leader Gastins wrote, quote, They like immersion, so let us immerse them. And so the Baptists were delivered to executioners. They were bound by their hands and their feet. They were placed in a boat and thrown and drowned in the water. And some Protestants began to mockingly call this the third baptism. And so at the instigation of Holdrich's Vingley, the St. Gaul City Council determined to persecute them by drowning if they refused to leave the territory. On September 9th, 1527, they issued this decree. And once again, I quote from them because I think it's important for you to hear what they said. Quote, In order that the dangerous, wicked, wicked, turbulent, and seditious sect of the Baptist may be eradicated, we have thus decreed. Who are they talking about? The Baptists. We have thus decreed, if anyone is suspected of rebaptism. He is to be warned by the magistracy to leave the territory under the penalty of the designated punishment, to be drowned. Every person is obliged to report those favorable to rebaptism. Whoever shall not comply with this ordinance is liable to punishment according to the sentence of the magistracy. Teachers of rebaptism, baptizing preachers, and leaders of hedge meetings are to be drowned. Those previously released from prison who have sworn to desist from such things shall incur the same penalty. Foreign Baptists are to be driven out. If they return, they shall be drowned. No one is allowed to secede from the Zwinglian church and to absent himself from the Holy Supper. Whoever flees from one jurisdiction to another shall be banished or extradited upon demand. The decree on March 26, 1530 was even more severe. I quote once again from them. All who adhere... To or favor the false sect of the Baptists and, the, and who attempt hedge meetings shall suffer the most severe punishments. Baptist leaders, their followers, and protectors shall be drowned without mercy. Those, however, who assist them or fail to report them or to arrest them shall be punished otherwise on body and goods as injurious and faithless subjects. This was happening. This was happening. Baptists were being drowned for their beliefs. Here's my question. Would you stay true to your beliefs if you faced drowning? Would you stay true to your beliefs if you faced drowning? Would you straight stay true to your faith as they begin to tie your hands behind your back, standing by a river? They've pulled the boat to shore that they're about to row you out to the middle of the river and river dump you over. Would you stay true? with drowning as the only other option. Many Baptists would go to lose their lives simply for their beliefs. Simply because they believed the Word of God and baptized as God would have them to, they would lose 
their very lives. Folks, this is the reality of what was happening. Now, I know that we have pictures hanging up of Martin Luther in our churches and refer to him in sermon illustrations, and, oh, the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, once said, I'll tell you what he once said, he said we should take their heads off their shoulders. He said, and agree that they should be persecuted. I'll tell you what these reformers believed. They believed in persecuting the Baptist. That's what they believed. They believed in persecuting the Baptist. And you'll find that these three men that we've talked about, not counting Holdrich Zwingli, John Knox, John Calvin, Martin Luther, would help to form pretty much all of your modern denominations. And uh, but really, there would be another sect of the um, of the Protestant Reformation that would come out, and that would be the Church of England. And so next week we'll talk a little bit about the Church of England, and we'll talk about an instance of Holdrich Zwingli and a great Baptist that would come into his life. And so we need to talk about these things, and then we'll be through with the Protestant Reformation, and then I've got some other exciting things that we've got here on the horizon of Sandy Creek stirrings. But until next time, keep looking up and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ.